back to Sports and Society for March 8th. This is Brad. I'm here with Kyle today. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well. I'm enjoying and here at the top getting used to what it feels like to not record all, record real early in the morning before the world starts. So I'm interested to see if that changes the nature of any of our hot takes. Well, it is interesting. I uh, I must confess to this stressing me out more than recording in the mornings does, which is interesting because we used to record in the evenings fairly frequently, if I remember rightly. Yeah. Um, but now it feels like the, you know these last few hours on it's a, a Sunday, it's like you're racing towards the start of the week. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I always feel as a teacher that when, for whatever reason, we have a little bit of a delayed schedule and the school day doesn't start until 9 or 10 or something like that, that everything is more enjoyable and more productive, which has always caused me to think of, like, why are we so apprehensive about altering how we relate to school in in our culture and how unwilling we are to experiment with, let's see what that would feel like. But, so I'm I'm kind of enjoying maybe having a little bit more uh, verbal energy here in the afternoon. <laughs> well, uh, maybe you'll have more and I'll have less, and we'll see how that goes. All right. If I get too chatty, just be like, dude, chill. <laughs> I think that might be the first time in your life you would have been considered too chatty, but we'll see where we go. It, it probably is true that in a sports and society context is where I would allow that to happen. <laughs> Which I don't know what that says about me, but um, at any rate, what have you been paying attention to this week? Well, two real quick things to get off uh, at the beginning here on this International Women's Day. I think it's very noteworthy to say that... Um, the championship match of the T20 Women's World Cup, which you mentioned uh, last week, had over 70,000 people show up, which is amazing. Um, but there was still always controversy in that it was put on the secondary channels. It was not put on the lead channels, even though there seemed to be uh, a public that was dying to, to see the action. Hmm. Uh, so that was interesting, along with the fact that uh, the NBC is going to have an all-female crew call an NHL game this afternoon and evening, which I find uh, really kind of cool. Uh, I wish it wasn't an NHL game, but uh, it's still pretty cool nonetheless. Yeah, I actually just came across that too this morning, both of those bits of information. And while I thought the Australia one, right, is mm-hmm, the Women's mm-hmm. World Cup, yeah, um, it seemed completely impossible to watch in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seemed the only way was through how you and I watched uh, the World Cup this past summer, the Men's World Cup, or World Cup? World Championship. What was it? What did we watch? I think it's a World Cup. <laughs> World Cup. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, through the only app I could find was Willow, um, and there was not, uh, as I saw, an option to buy just the T20 World Cup for the women's final. Um, which there was for the men's uh, at my first glance. Uh, So that stuck out to me. I didn't know how to feel about the NHL crew. Uh, Is that cool? Uh, Help me. I I was like, my first reaction was, that's great. My second reaction was like, is that great or is that 
uh, is there a way that in which that's a slight or not enough or kind of well, paying lip it's service? Not enough. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, absolutely it's not enough. But mm-hmm. I do think it's worth it's a step there. I think I look at, um, you know, I think we can all, you know, Doris Burke has for some reason not made it onto this team with Mike Breen and Jeff Van Gundy to be the number one person on ESPN but I think for most people that really love basketball she's probably the best commentator on the NBA right now and so I think Mm -hmm. that there's something about seeing a woman that knows as much if not more about uh, sports than men that is I think a good thing in changing some of those dynamics Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think that uh, if nothing else in some ways I view it as a good thing because it's going to piss off a certain number of people and yeah those people probably need to be pissed off a little bit more. So, right. um, uh, again, it's never enough. And it's with hockey, it's particularly feels rough in that, you know, women's hockey is so kind of looked down upon. But uh, I still think it's kind of a step in the right direction. Right. Yeah, it makes to you recognize, think of like- To recognize female uh, uh, expertise, I guess, would be where I would let it come down. Yeah, I like that. It makes me think that there was an opportunity to get even more creative and do something like uh, put a w- woman's hockey game in the primetime slot and say, like, Let, watch this. It's excellent. It's great. And give it mm-hmm. all the bells and whistles and money that uh, the NHL receives all the time and allow people to experience that, like, oh, there is more than enough in women's sports that's just as compelling as any men's sport. So. Well, what I will say is what made it particularly interesting to me at first, and then I turned out that this was not the fact, was when they first announced it, it was going to be an all-female, like, I thought it was going to be all-female everything, like camera women, uh, you know, everybody that was doing all the production stuff, and I don't think that's the case. And that would be, I think, particularly cool, if only from the standpoint of uh, this is another underrepresented world in the form of the people that actually produce the media that... um, would be interesting to see turned over in that way. Right. Yeah. The shape and the shape and scope of media has so much to do with it all. It is. But yeah. I did want to share. So my big thing for this past week, and this is really going forward as well, is that I am just excited about sports at the moment. Um, you know, I kind of haven't paid much attention to NCAA basketball at the moment, but that's coming back up. We'll have term conference tourneys this week, which is perhaps my favorite week of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, golf is starting to matter again. So, you know, I was watching Rory today and I found myself being like, okay, I can get into this again. It's about that time of year. Yeah. Um, we're getting towards the end of the soccer season. So the games are starting to matter more, which is always a good thing. NBA playoffs will be here before we know it. Cycling, getting back into things. Well, somewhat back into things, those that haven't been shut down by Right. Our good friend, Mr. Corona. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the chess candidates tournament to determine who will face Magnus in the next world championship starts here in a week or two. And the IPL starts at the end of the month. So I'm just pretty jazzed about our March and April of sports we have coming up here. I couldn't agree more. I, I have to acknowledge that you didn't mention baseball at all. I love watching baseball implode on itself right now i must confess <laughs> baseball's in a tough spot is the self-created a thousand percent self-created this is the definition of what you get when you insulate yourself and think that's a good way to interact with the world 
Well, I, I, I did think about it when I was writing out my list and I was like, I don't care about baseball. Yeah. <laughs> I awesome. might watch some playoff series, but nothing until then. It's literally, I, I'm the same way. Like baseball starting is, is interesting to me. Baseball in October is when I'm like, oh, okay, I'll start paying attention a little bit. I did see the one thing that made me smile this week was there was, I think it was a Yankees pitcher that was like intentionally tipping all of his pitches to kind of make fun of this whole thing. I saw that. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant protest. (laughs) Like a lot of the protests have been such bro protests in like such a bro way of going about espousing like how you feel about something in a negative fashion. But when I saw that one, I was like, there is a bro element to this, but it's also kind of clever. Um, So I kind of appreciated that as opposed to just like talking crap, uh, you know, actually doing something. Well, what have you been paying attention to, man? Uh, so as is often the case when I get caught up in a YouTube world of behind the scenes sports footage of all shapes and sizes, uh, I was really compelled this week, uh, as has happened to me in the past with, uh, what's going on in the climbing world and what's also going on in the skateboarding world. And, uh, I don't have much more to say about it other than just to put it out there that uh, with your help, you helped me realize that one piece of the YouTube sports world that's so interesting is just the fact that it exists uh, and what it makes possible and the type of fan experience it creates and the reasons for which it's interesting is interesting, uh, meaning I I think the behind the scenes sports footage has been something that has been a part of your and mine and so many others sports experience of our generation in that some of my earliest experiences of being really interested in the sports world is what was going on behind the scenes and that came in the form of like these rarely seen often things you had to buy on VHS tape of like the end of a season kind of like look behind the scenes of the NFL or something like that. But that we can get it so readily on YouTube changes things in so many ways. But nonetheless, um, I I got really interested in Nigel Houston. Have you heard of him? Mm -mm. So he's like essentially the best skateboarder in the world right now. And... um, has aligned himself with a whole bunch of different people in different ways. So he actually left at the, at the midpoint of his career. He's about 10 years into his career, about halfway. He left all the major brands of skateboarding and tried to kind of create his own route and his own mm-hmm. company. Uh, it didn't really play out, and he has ended up coming back to the bigger companies. And not just a little bit. He's come back to such the extent that he signed with Nike, Um mm-hmm. And so Nike is a major player in the skateboarding world right now, uh, which is interesting. And that it comes with him having his own signature shoe with Nike kind of allies him with, you know, Michael Jordan and LeBron James and that that whole environment in a way. Um, So there's a lot of interesting things about him, him on top of him just being an exceptional skater. And that all segues into skateboarding being in the Olympics. Uh, for the first time 
and so there's a lot of videos out there about the um, uh, Olympic trials, which are happening all summer, which uh, six of the 10 events is, so it's a 10 event trial uh, and six of them have been canceled by Corona. Hmm. Uh, so there's only going to be four events to make the U S Olympic skateboarding team, uh, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at any rate, just to kind of point all that out, you know, there's like a lot of details in there that are interesting, but I, I think like you said, I, what is most interesting is that we just have that access in the first place. Uh, and that seems to change things in a lot of ways. <laughs> Well, it does. I mean, you sent me that Adam Andra video this week, and it is like the accessibility we have to these folks these days is staggering. And I'm, you know, I mean, growing up, you know, you might have seen climbing on, you know, ABC every once in a while, and like, you know, there'd be a movie maybe every other year that would captivate you to go mm-hmm. think about it. But it wasn't just readily available. And now you can go and watch a different climbing video every day. Right on YouTube, and it's. I think it's fascinating, and it's really, I think, a great thing for some of these uh, niche sports out there that we, you know, you and I that love the story can kind of understand the story in a way that we never could have otherwise. I think about there's one guy that does um, runs ultra marathons, and he does uh, YouTube or you GoPro and puts right. his stuff on YouTube afterwards, and it's just fascinating to see like hear his story and see these other competitors as very humans and with a very minimal lens into that space. I mean, the thing for me about the Edamondra piece in some ways is just that, that we seem to really prize authenticity in these things. And so the, if it's fake, it really doesn't ring. Right. And so you're getting to see these folks kind of as they really are. And I mean, that's even true in our traditional sports, I mean, the fact that we know about LeBron's Taco Tuesday thing is is somewhat right. staggering in the in the grand scope of things. Right. Yeah, it's also interesting for me in the context of something like the NHL. So picking something that you and I don't pay a lot of attention to, uh, but the NHL is getting hundreds of millions of views today. And I think about something that I watch on YouTube that has like 10 million views. And I'm like, holy crap, the climbing video has 10 million views, Mm -hmm. which is a 10,000% increase from when we were kids of what climbing was in the world. And it's still only like 1% of what NHL viewership is going to get. So when we say niche sports, I, I think that deserves some unpacking or at least, at least acknowledging of like how incredibly niche they are. Um, just to, if nothing else, just to point it out, I, I guess that there's these people dedicating their lives and creating these really beautiful videos. And I, I, that was part of the skate skating for me is um, a friend in college turned me on to skate videos uh, which is just a whole underground world of all these really mm. beautiful artistic videos um, that are like worthy of winning Grammy or not Grammys, but Oscars, in my opinion. I mean, they're incredibly beautiful and artistic uh, and they have 100,000 views, which is a lot, <laughs> but nothing compared to the mainstream sports world. Well, it is. I mean, I think that that's the big thing, right, is that you can now do beautiful imagery of these things and some of these sports where that really lends it to. I mean, you think about 
you know, I mentioned Don Wall, but these climbing videos, they can do some absolutely spectacular things yeah. cinematography wise, something yep. that no other sport can capture. Yeah. Um, and so that's just really compelling and really hard to argue with that, that kind yep. of getting into the brain and, and getting you going. Yeah. It makes me wish like more people appreciated a lot of those new sport video worlds. Um, mm-hmm. They're they're really beautiful. They're they're inspiring in a lot of ways, in my opinion. Yeah, agreed. But, but should we get into our main topic this week? Let's let's do it. Uh, we're going to talk about the MLS this week, Major League Soccer. Kyle, um, you this has kind of been on the tip of your mind. What did, what kind of brought this to your mind at the moment? So there are several things that I think are worth talking about within the realm of MLS season starting. Um, there are a, a few ways into all those pieces. And I think the first piece that makes it worth talking about is how the MLS has changed in our lifetime. And so I have some statistics here maybe as kind of a way in. So it was founded in 1993. So we would have been about 10, nine years old. And it started with 10 teams. And then in 2001, they actually dropped two teams after adding two teams in those first eight years. So they went down from 12 back down to 10 because they had lost money every year uh, from 1993 to 2001. And then there was some World Cup success. And so in the early 2000s, they kind of picked up a little bit of momentum. And so currently there are 26 teams in Major League Soccer with plans to expand all the way to 32 teams by 2025. And there's all kinds of numbers you can point to here that kind of show the significance of that. But one that stands out to me is that the 32nd team that joins, whomever it is, there's kind of a competition to see who it's going to be. But the 32nd team is going to be required to pay $325 million to join the league. Uh, And in 1993, it was $10 million. So that's a big jump. (laughs) That's a really big change. Uh, Yet... Uh, I think to kind of put a framework around the conversation of what is the MLS and what do we make of this growth and this change in our lifetime is that the broadcasting rights contract that MLS has with several providers is valued at $90 million. That's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But to put that into context, the NBA just signed a $24 billion broadcast contract and the NFL's contract is the biggest at $5 billion a year. So, <laughs> nowhere, I mean, not even a sniff. Uh, so, it, it it has maybe here at the start is kind of a, a way to like put it into context is that MLS has entered the conversation, uh, but yet it is so, so, so far away from NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, NHL, uh, and even the other ones that are kind of off the side. So, like, um, obviously college basketball is not off the side, but tennis, golf, uh, these other things there. And then if you take it to an international context, um, it's really not even close to what inter- international soccer in Europe exists. Mm-hmm. 
And so one of the central questions that kind of emerges is what is MLS in the context of the United States? And then what is the MLS in the context of European and world soccer? Um, And so there's all these different ways we could go with that. But I think where where I end up being interested in it is that um, last night there were 70,000 people to watch Atlanta FC play Cincinnati FC. Um, like, holy smokes. That, that's 70,000 people to watch Atlanta and Cincinnati play soccer. Mm-hmm. And in 1993, when we were 10 years old, that was uh, in- inconceivable, entirely mm-hmm. inconceivable. Um, so uh, that is just kind of an opening. There's There's all these different ways we can go with it. We can talk about... Uh, what do we want from the MLS? We can talk about what would a successful MLS look like. I think there's an interesting piece that the MLS might not be the success that it is today were it not for the success of the women's national team. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different ways to go with it. So I'll kind of throw that out there and see if anything jumps out at you here at the start. <laughs> we got lots to, lots to talk about there. And I think that I want to kind of start by placing the MLS in the broader scope of world soccer, because I think that, um, uh, I think that that's for you and I, and I won't speak for you, but for me, like I love international soccer. I watch, you know, I will spend, you know, on average three to four hours on a weekend watching EPL or Bundesliga games. Um, and the quality of play, even amongst the lower level teams, even like a a, a Burnley Brighton game, mm-hmm. can be very enjoyable. Yeah. Um, and yet, I don't ever find that to be the case with the MLS. And that being said, there are some fantastic players in the MLS. I mean, we've seen Miguel Almiron uh, really come into his own now with Newcastle. We've seen. Uh, you know, freaking Alfonso Davies looks phenomenal. Like the he's going to be the best player in the world here soon. I, I see a Gareth Bale clear comparison there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and so I think that there's some interesting things there, but I think overall the lack of consistency, I think there are a number of little things that wind up in a poor overall experience. And so I think the MLS at this point, and I don't see this changing anytime soon, is really just – a feeder club that would I would say would be C tier of uh, clubs in the world at this point. Right. Yeah, and I think one of the central problems the league is facing is that kind of imagery or the nature of the league as a feeder organization, as if it's mm-hmm. kind of like a minor league. And I think for me that gets into the conversation of what would a successful MLS look like? And I think there are many within the MLS. And if you read about the growth of it and you read what those in power and those kind of on the fringes of whatever celebrity the, uh, there is for people in MLS, you hear a lot of people talk about the value of players leaving the MLS and going to Europe to play. And there are also those in the MLS that say, like, why would we want that? So already there is kind of this split of like it's good for the MLS when an up-and-comer that has come through the American system goes to Europe and has some some success. But 
I also kind of am with those that say like, wait, wouldn't it be awesome if they stayed <laughs> and they uh, made their career in the United States playing for one team for their lifetime and kind of created this culture around a certain club of being this great player on this club that they came up through. Uh, so there's already that kind of divide there that I think is interesting. But the idea of just being a feeder system makes me think like, well, what are you doing this for then? Um, yeah, and I have to confess that uh, this is probably going to surprise some folks. Um, I am almost always in our major sports a fan of salary caps, but I am not a fan of the MLS's salary cap. Um, okay, so I wanted to know where you were on this. Uh, I am majorly opposed to it. Um because I think there's several reasons to this. One, it, because it creates an artificial situation where if you have a player that becomes good, you cannot keep him anymore. Um, but B, I think it limits investment in the league. And finally, and, and I think this is perhaps my biggest point and my biggest fault with the MLS as a whole, is that these teams, there's there's too much parity, which I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, but there's these teams they don't make any sense to me. Like, so the LA galaxy of two years ago is unrecognizable from the LA galaxy of this year. And that's a problem for fans that are casual fans. Um, even for things like the NBA where you're not sure people might be traded that you just, uh, I think you wind up in real trouble because I don't know who these players are on these teams every two years. And I think that that's, really problematic and when i watch a team when i turn on the mls i want to know oh portland's playing that means i'm going to get to see you know a so-and-so player and i just don't ever feel like that's the case and that's um uh, as someone who doesn't want to get into it like i have enough other sports to watch that's really tough and a barrier to get into this is fascinating brad i wasn't expecting that because if I, I think what the implication is for me right off the bat is that even though you and I may value parity in a league and a salary cap is something that can uh, create and engender a certain amount of parity, it is also maybe the case from your perspective that when there is a like class struggle within the sport, there's something compelling about the class struggle. Uh, as far as generating a fan base. And so, for instance, like you know that even if, if you're not a huge baseball fan, that if you tune in to watch the New York Yankees uh, play against um, Tampa Bay, that you're looking at an organization that's going to spend $350 million on salaries and one that's going to spend less than $100 million. And so you're seeing like this natural David and Goliath mm -hmm. sort of thing, and there's something interesting about that. There's something predictable about that. And so something like the English Premier League thrives on that too, right? Of uh, these smaller clubs competing against these massive clubs. Um, so you really think the salary cap is bad for MLS? I do. Uh, particularly, I think, because it, it's an artificial cap that keeps us from having these big name players. I mean, the designated player rule is designed as the 
tool of a league that doesn't take itself seriously about being able to attract top talent. I mean, it's right. it's a pretty clear statement that we don't we can't get these folks other than with this special tool. Um, and so, from that sense, I want to take the reins off of it. See, I would love to see what happens if we allowed uh, Manchester City and uh, the Emirates to pump you know, a hundred million dollars into New York city FC. I think that would be fascinating and a really good thing for MLS. I think that it piss a bunch of folks off, but you'd see other teams respond in a way that I think is, would be really positive towards the end. So I think your take is more realistic than mine. <laughs> but my idealistic take is that what would happen if the MLS were to even get rid of the player designation rule, so I guess it's worth pointing out that uh, as it stands right now, the David Beckham effect is such that MLS changed its policy so that teams could break the salary cap rule and spend money on three players that is outside the salary cap. So you can essentially try and attract three stars and pay them whatever you think they're worth. Um, with the idea that, or the intention is that if we draw at least three stars on each team, those three straw stars can draw attention and therefore mm -hmm. grow the league and be good for the city uh, and the league as a whole. Um, I guess my take is when I see 70,000 people at Nashville's first game and when I see all these cities building stadiums uh, and here in Louisville where I live, we're building a stadium and are in the conversation of being that 32nd team, actually. Um, I, I think of how much those star players don't matter for that. Like, I don't think those 70,000 yes. went to see those star players. They went to support their city in a sport that they feel that they can appreciate and like and love more than baseball, football, and basketball. Uh, and have a communal experience. And not only that, I think the numbers of 18 to 34-year-olds, which is this coveted market, like the MLS is crushing that market. Mm -hmm. um, not as much as the NBA, but um, they're creating this communal experience around MLS. And I think to not take notice of that would be to like not pay attention to this huge swath of Americans that are like, we don't like NASCAR. We don't like NFL. We don't like the <laughs> NHL. We don't like Major League Baseball. We don't have an NBA team. And we love soccer and our kids play soccer and we grew up playing soccer and we want to be part of a communal experience and live locally. And I think that MLS is tapping into that. And so I think that's the most significant piece for me. Um, I yeah. completely agree with that. And I think you're you're absolutely right. And I think it's interesting because I think that the league has made a decision and I think it's the wrong decision, but they've made this decision to enforce this salary cap. And what it has done is made parity a very real thing in the sense that year to year, we have no freaking clue who's going to win the MLS yeah. cup. I mean, just no idea. And I think that is in the end, very harmful for the league and the narratives it can build and those kind of things. However, it does lend itself to having host cities that care very deeply about the teams that are part of their communities. I mean, we've seen Atlanta United, man, these fans are amazing. We've seen yeah. uh, the New York City fans, the DC fans. These are great fans, Portland and, and Seattle fans. Um, and so I think that they've created an experience and they put a bunch of effort into 
making that fan experience great at the game. Yes. And so I think that they've created, again, these senses where the cities where that host these love this. But I think that what has happened in return is that instead of there being like a, you know, if we think about baseball or basketball, instead of there being like a, a three or four hour radius drive around a city where people care about it, we're just seeing that only that city cares about it because they haven't been able to build the narratives right otherwise and that's where i think you run into like yes it probably is a major success on this level but i think they're hampering themselves as to who they can be long term and maybe they've got this grand plan to eliminate the salary cap at some point but i do i mean i'm significantly worried about the expansion plans if only because the usl did the same thing back in the day and that was what killed it was the dilution of talent and the right. lack of recognizable names on the on the agenda right yeah i i agree you raise a like the most important point and i think this is where like the ultimate divide is on which direction the mls should go is if there is not recognizable talent that uh ascends borders such that I can tune into an LA game because I want to see the star player for LA play just as how I tune into a Man City game Mm -hmm. like I don't give a shit about Manchester England like on any level like I have no no connection to (laughs) that place right zero I don't care if people love Manchester City right like if there were no one in the stands i would watch manchester city play because it's incredible soccer that's what i would be tuning in for uh and so the idea of what do you do when you have a product that sells incredibly to a local community but doesn't cross borders um and that could be incredibly problematic if the mls goes the route of trying to be like european soccer and so i think this is my hot take um don't try and be european soccer don't try and be the nba don't try and be anything we've seen like literally be a a forerunner be a like blaze a trail here and say we're going to be really different uh and we are going to cater to these local communities and we may not ever have a broadcast rights contract over $100 million, and that would be fine. Uh, what I fear most about MLS is not it going away. I fear it becoming incredibly plastic hmm. and emblazoned with all these corporations that are going to, for me very personally, kind of like bleed it dry of all of its integrity. Hmm. Um, and so when I go to a Reds game now, it like depresses me to see how consumeristic it is. And it, of course, professional sports have always been that way, but it, when all professional sports feel like a iteration of a NASCAR, that's when I'm just like so depressed and so sad. And so my ideal is that MLS turns away from that and does the minimal amount of capitalism that they have to. <laughs> Um, and I feel like right now that's possible. And with a fan base that would believe in that, I'm like, gosh, you have such an opportunity here. Like, do you really want to try and compete with Manchester City? Like, you're looking at an institution that's 150 years old and has, you know, a billion people worldwide that know that brand. Like, Nashville FC is not going to be that in 
I mean, for a century. So, like, why try and create that? Why try and compete with that market? Hmm. I guess is where I am on it. And I guess I would say I think they've already sold the sold it. They're too uh, far. They're too far. I I remember back in the early days. I there was you know probably the first seven to ten years that uh, MLS was on. I probably paid attention a fair bit, if only because I was close enough to DC United to feel like they were my team. Yeah. And they were doing really well, and they had this core of stars that I really liked um, watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like we've lost some of that component to it. Um, yeah. And we've got Target Field, and we've got all these things happening now. And so I, I think there are real opportunities to make it super special, but I don't think mm-hmm. I trust the MLS to make those decisions. I, I kind of disagree with you on I think – I'm not saying this would be copying um, uh, European soccer, but I think we've seen that these games are incredibly compelling to their local audiences. So I think there's a place where you could say, right now in MLS, if you were to institute a um, uh, all of a sudden go to a hundred team tier twenty teams in each league system like uh, the English yep. system, and have a chance for Roanoke to start a really crappy fifth tier team, but that turn into something someday. I think you could make money even on those crappy teams these days, maybe not a ton of money, but you could make enough. Right. Uh, and it would make the whole thing more compelling because then you'd get to see all the different folks. And I, that's where I think I could see you growing what you have now into something really special. But uh, I'm highly doubtful that the MLS is willing to go down a relegation route, even though, everyone seems to acknowledge that it's the best way to make sure the end of your season is a compelling time. Right. So that's interesting. This is where I like agree and disagree is like, don't try and be man city, but also bring in relegation. Mm -hmm. And it's also where I agree with you that that's never going to happen. Uh, because it costs $300 million to join the MLS right now. And with the it kind of being proven that your first like 10 years as a club in the MLS, you're not going to make money. It's like, okay, so you're investing like five, six hundred million dollars in something that could, if your team doesn't perform because of a salary cap that brings in parity, you're going to be relegated. Like that's just not sustainable. That's just not going to work. So in a perfect world, uh, the salary cap would stay and there would be relegation. But I don't think those two things can exist alongside each other. Well, I kind of – I don't understand. Um, I mean, I get it. I know why it is the way that it is. But there is a very clear model that MLS could have followed. I mean, mm-hmm. this European soccer style has been – around for years and it would have been so simple just to replicate the whole thing instead of trying to make this like a major league baseball thing right Um, right. and yet they've gone down that road and i think much to their detriment like i uh, i will watch them the mls playoffs this year but i don't care about mls regular season because they've diluted it to the point where why would i care about i mean the top eight teams are getting in the regular season doesn't matter right um and I, I think that European leagues, we see every game matters. I mean, here we are in March, and it's like just now ratcheting up to see. I mean, this top four race is going to be huge right. uh, over the next few months. And that's really compelling. And it's something the MLS will never have because they've chosen to go this model 
where they'll make a bunch of money in the playoffs, but they'll lose a bunch of money the rest of the year. Right. But the, also those the fans that appreciate those teams in those cities will have a great time. <laughs> yeah. And so I, yeah. this raises a question I think we've brought up before too is that I feel is worth asking. Like I, I like am inherently I think applauding the localism of MLS and how that's a, a, a key piece of it. But it also raises the question that I think is worth asking is like how impactful are these clubs in these cities? Mm-hmm. Um so they they have good marketing and they have uh, the power to attract some attention. But just because seventy thousand people go to a stadium to watch a game doesn't mean the eight million people that live in that metropolitan area are like benefiting from that game. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's worth pointing out to you. Well, I mean, that's if we go down that rabbit hole, every. Uh, professional sports league is not doing what it should be doing. <laughs> if you look at the cost, like the investment that you make in these stadiums, it is absurd for the payoff that you get from it. It's yeah. never going to match up. Um, I, I, just, like I have, is, Go ahead. Well, I just also have to make this really, since we're on this kind of topic here, I have to say that if you still have artificial damn turf pitches, you're never going to compete yeah. with another yeah. league. Yeah. God, I hate it so much. You know, you watch it and you're just like, this is not, I don't want to watch this. It's so terrible. It's so terrible. Yeah, the thing, like the specific kind of granular things that are missing, I think are top quality announcing and color mm-hmm. commentating mm-hmm. and then the fields themselves. Freaking Taylor um, Twelman, get rid of this guy! Gosh, yeah. I'm sorry. If you want to defend yourself, we'll welcome you to be on the podcast, Taylor. But I don't want to listen to you and Alexi Lawless talk on TV again ever. Man, so this is maybe kind of where I'm. I'm getting towards a like a, a wrap up, but I I think I a, another question I have is what the next generation of American fans of soccer think of all this. And I literally mean like a kid that's like eight years old Mm -hmm. right now. And I think of an eight-year-old kid being taken to that Nashville game that drew 70,000. And I have to think like to put it into my own context of viewing sports of like how powerful going to a Cincinnati Reds game when Mm -hmm. I was eight years old was. And so I have to think that maybe they'll have different expectations than you and I do, um, all the way down to like the specifics of like, I've grown up watching British soccer with British announcers that essentially are like academic level announcing. They're so pristine and precise and it's beautiful and it's like an artwork of how they call a game. And so of course I think Alexi Lalas and Taylor Twelman fall short. Uh, but if you've only known MLS and you weren't there at the beginning, um, how how you view it? Because I I can't get away from the fact of like I remember MLS doing 35 yard away penalty shootout breakaways at the goalies on, on football fields where the ball was bouncing <laughs> all over the place. Like I remember the beginnings, and I wonder how much that taints my view of what's happening now. Hmm. Well, and this, uh, I think that that's perhaps the biggest thing that we haven't touched on yet is just that the quality of play, 
while it improves year on year, is still nowhere near yeah. what we see on those top levels. And I think that for me, what attracts me to the sport is when I see Liverpool make these triangles work. And right. when you see that guy make that pass, like, oh my word, how did he see that? Right. Um, and you just, when you're watching an MLS match, um, you just don't see very much of that. Right. Um, and so I think that there's part of me that that's why I don't spend too much time with it is because the quality is not there. But also thinking about that next generation, what worries me is that this is the league that we've set up as the U.S. League and it is not a league that seems designed to improve the quality of play that we expect as a U.S. Uh, right. soccer base. Right. Yeah, this is a good point. Yeah. Yeah. The, the A piece we haven't dug, dug into is what this means for national teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at any rate, it's changing incredibly quickly. Uh, so it'll kind of be fascinating to keep watch on what next season looks like and even the five seasons after that. Well, what this makes me think about is what do we need to do to become the color commentators for the Louisville team? <laughs> yeah, there there is a local podcast. I, I have observed them. They actually record at a bar just down the street from where we live. <laughs> Um, and so I, I have thought to get in touch with them before and just get to know them a little bit. Yeah. Well, we, uh, I, I would love myself to try color commentating at some point. I'm sure I would be dreadful at it, but, um, um I, I would be horrible. <laughs> so terrible. <laughs> like to tune in to hear me call a game would mean hearing four sentences in two hours. Then they would be like, oh, that was awesome. That would be like my commentation of the first half. <laughs> yeah, oh, I would be God. terrible. <laughs> oh, my. We'll tune in next week to hear a really boring uh, uh, yeah. calling of a game. <laughs> oh, man. All well, right, man. Well, you want to leave it there? Any final thoughts? I'm good there. All right. Well, what uh, what are you going to be paying attention to this coming week, man? So I'm staying in soccer, and I uh, am interested in the story that's been unraveling for a while, but a piece broke this morning that the United States Soccer Federation uh, made a public relations announcement that is laden with a whole lot of complexity that they are... They have claimed they're willing to pay U.S. women's national team players the same as men. Uh, and that's it's kind of in the simplicity that the fakeness of that can be observed uh, because the women that originally brought the case against the United States Soccer Federation are saying several things about what the Federation is saying. The first is that they're using the 2018 salaries of men and that the women they're willing to pay are um, not every member of the current team, but when the loss mm. started. <laughs> so that's like half because the team changes so much. Uh, they, the women are also saying that talks were supposed to be private and now the federation has taken it public. 
And they've taken it public just to score political points by saying, we're doing our best. We'll pay you. Um, also, what the original lawsuit against the Federation says is that um, it's across the board, no matter where the game is happening, in what context or in any way whatsoever, the salaries need to be the same. The problem with that from the Federation standpoint is that $38 million was paid to France for winning the Men's World Cup. $4 million was paid to the U.S. women for winning the World mm. Cup from FIFA. And so what the U.S. women are saying is you owe us $34 million, uh, essentially. And the Federation is saying we can't fiscally do that. We don't have $34 million. And the women are saying, well, then we'll see you in court. Um, so that case is ongoing and the women have completely laughed in the face of what the Federation just came public with today. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next. Hmm. Indeed. I, I saw the headline, but I did not dig into it. So I appreciated, yeah. uh, I appreciate that tidbit there. Yeah. What about you? So I'll be paying attention to the, uh, NBA this week because we're getting to crunch time right now as we're recording this we got Lakers, Clippers going on, which is pretty exciting. Um, uh, and uh, there's two big stories that I think are interesting. One is uh, LeBron making a comment about not playing for empty stadiums, which I yep. find so stupid. Yes, you would absolutely play if there was an empty stadium, LeBron. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, okay, feel free to make that comment, whatever. Yeah. Um, and also feel free to diminish the concerns of this. Yeah. That's that's perhaps the bigger problem. But then the other one being um, the Brooklyn Nets parting ways with Kenny Atkinson. Um, mm -hmm. And this is fascinating to me from the perspective of Kenny Atkinson clearly being a good coach, and yet Kyrie Irving uh, seeming to be the most difficult person to deal with in the NBA right now. Yeah. Um, and just what what that line between talent and uh, difficulty dealing with looks like in the modern sports world is fascinating to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I thought the same thing when I saw that storyline. So them firing their coach with Kyrie on the team and Kyrie is seemingly not fit in wherever he has been just yet. Yeah. It raises that question of like, there's this mantra I feel like in the NBA, especially of like, do what's good for you amongst the players. And it's like, that is true, but you also are part of a team, literally. Like, it's great to do what's good for you, but at some point, 15 people are going to have to come together and, like, make some sacrifices. Um, so that, that was my first thought when I saw that story, too. Well, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating, too, from the perspective of um... – you know, there's some stuff that's come out about Kenny Atkinson not particularly wanting to coach Durant yeah. and Kyrie. And so that's interesting from the standpoint of, like, uh, I get that. So do we, like, cheer him on for right. stepping back from a situation that he didn't want to be in? Or do we say, you know, you need to deal with the chips that are dealt to you? It's a it's an interesting yeah. challenge. But also from the perspective of um, institutional confidence in some ways and that you know Kyrie did some of the same crap with the Celtics last year except the Celtics stood behind Brad Stevens and everybody was miserable but they were never going to part ways with him right and so Kyrie was the one that went and I think we see now the Celtics are thriving in this space and so uh 
I do think that there's nothing wrong. I think you and I are both in favor of the power player power movement in terms of giving some of that player power back to them. But right. I think we also see that the teams that succeed are those that uh, have strong institutions that are willing to say no to the demands of uh, players that are outside the bounds of what is doable. Right. Yeah. That player power comes with nuance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but LeBron, you will absolutely be playing in front of empty stadiums. I'm almost certain of it in the not too distant future. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think it's going to happen, and it could happen in the playoffs even. Yeah, and you know, the, I I also just want to say that your comment about you do this for the fans is a little bit absurd as well because I get it, but I'm pretty sure you do this because you want to be this person which is a nuanced thing as well but let's be clear all of this is nuanced and simple answers don't don't hold up anymore yeah do it for free uh and then (laughs) tell me you do it for the fans kind of thing (laughs) oh my well i just i have to say that you know there's been this whole conversation on a bunch of these nba podcasts i listen to about this in season tournament and they're like, what kind what do we have to do to incentivize these guys to take it seriously? Yeah. And I want to say on some level, like maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, all you have to do is tell them, you know, you have to take this seriously or they, all they have to do is see another player take it seriously before they take it seriously. So, right. um, you know, I don't worry about that. These guys are seriously competitive individuals. Um, yep. And I, for one, want to see Giannis and James Harden going at it in the playoffs. Yep, exactly. Which my pitch, by the way, for the NBA in-season tournament, teams go three-on-three, half-court, games to 21 or 35, uh, and it would be amazing. That would be really fun to watch. Oh, my. Anyway, well, uh, anything else on your mind, man? I'm good there. Thanks, man. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Please give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this. If you head on over to the website, understandingsports.org, Kyle's got a fascinating piece up from this past week. So you can, you're going to want to check that out, see kind of how he's thinking about uh, our whole concept here. But um, yeah, give us a rating and review. You can follow us on uh, Twitter and Facebook now. But uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you next week. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man.